So my wife and I have two very different appetites when it comes to junk food. I have a tremendous appetite for junk food and her not so much. Susan has, has a, a, you know, a distinguished palate. She loves food. She's a foodie. She enjoys diversity. And I'm pretty simple. We'll be on a road trip, say, and uh, I'll get hungry. We'll be driving along the highway. I have no problem pulling over. I have no shame pulling over into McDonald's or some fast food joint. No problem. And Susan's like, I'll wait, you know, because because for her, she's like, that's not even food. I don't know what you're eating. Plastic styrofoam. What is it? We have two completely different, you know, things. And so we've done it where I would I would say, are you sure you don't eat anything? We've been driving for a while. And she says, no, I'm good. And so I eat the junk food. She doesn't. We get home. And she's preparing real food, and I'm hungry again. Because, of course, you, know, you already know where this is going. There's no nutritional value in junk food. There's more nutritional value in the packaging of the junk food than the junk food. So you're hungry again when you get home. It's possible to feed and not be filled. It's possible to eat food that nourishes you and satisfies your hunger. And it's possible to eat food that is incapable of nourishing you and leaves you in your hunger. Our text this morning is Proverbs chapter 9. And in Proverbs 9, we're given some strong poetic parallelism around two very different dinner invitations. Two different in- dinner invites, and uh, one, they're contrasting wisdom and folly, and one fills us and fills our hunger, and one leaves us in our hunger. Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. And she's hewn her seven pillars, and she's slaughtered her beasts, she's mixed her wine, she's also set her table. She set out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever's simple, let him turn here. Whoever lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, but he who reproves, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he'll be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy, of the holy one is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places in town. She's calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is God's word. Now, this, as this poem unfolds, you've got this tremendous picture. And it begins with wisdom building her house. She builds her house and it has seven pillars. Well, in the ancient world, your house did not have seven pillars. That would have been quite a place. In the modern world, most of our houses do not have seven pillars. That would be quite a place. This is a poetic image of like a temple or a palace. So right away we learn that this wisdom is, the wisdom we're talking about here is divine. It's otherworldly. The wisdom we're talking about here is fit for a king, fit for a priest. That should make you think of somebody. And this is how it opens up. And uh, 
as it opens up, what we're, you know, some, some Hebrew scholars say that the seven pillars are representative. If you read earlier, earlier in Proverbs, wisdom is there at the creation of God in the seven creation days. And this idea that there is this, there is this God who transcends you and therefore his wisdom is faithful to guide you. You can trust him. Our God is not a restrictor, but a fulfiller, one who loves us and cares for us and has given everything in Jesus Christ for us so we can trust him. He won't lead us astray. And so practically speaking, this is about where we turn to feast to fill our souls. Where do we get the soul food? What ultimately is bringing contentment into our life? How is it that we, uh, how is it that we approach wisdom and how is it that we approach decision making? So this theme of spiritual food that nourishes the soul. It's developed all through the scriptures. You find it all through the Old Testament. Uh, the language of feasting and eating and celebrating. For example, in uh, Psalm uh, 23, that, that very famous passage where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. It begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? God, God is, uh, Jesus Christ is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I need nothing. There's a contentment. There's a, a nourished soul. There's a fulfillment there. So you've got this this picture all through the Old Testament. And wisdom literature is really calling us, as the children of God, to walk in the implications of a grace-drenched adoption. Like, it's calling us to, to, to think about this. If we are children of grace, then wisdom is going to look like living in, in, in imitation of the one who saved us in grace. And so Proverbs 9 does this by, showing, by giving us two competing dinner invitations. That's what Proverbs 9 is. is. And, and it, in this, the philosopher who wrote this, Solomon, he wants us to stop and meditate and think about getting these two contrasting dinner invitations. And on what basis do we RSVP? Because we are all RSVPing to one of them. We're either RSVPing to wisdom, we're RSVPing to foolishness, we are doing it. And so for those, it's a good reminder for all of us, but for those of you who are here this morning, and you're considering Christian faith, you're thoughtfully exploring Christian faith, here's something fundamental you need to understand before I even unpack this text. It's that the life that the Christian lives, and right, this text is talking about a, a wise life, but the life that we live, whether wisdom, loving, right, ethical, that's not a life we live as a form of payment. It's from pleasure. We're not desiring to walk out the ethics of Proverbs 9 so that God will accept us. You see, on the basis of Jesus Christ and his perfection, his perfect love, his perfect wisdom, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection, we as the children of God, we already have God's acceptance. So if you're exploring Christian faith this morning, that's the, you need to know this or you're not going to understand as I walk through this text. This is from a position of pure pleasure that we desire this wisdom. The life of the Christian is pleasure, not payment. So, um, as we unpack Proverbs 9, we'll look at three things here. And of course, there's, in every text we go to, there's always more than three things. But most preachers like, like me who are simple guys, we just limit it to three things, three points in a poem. It helps us to remember things. And, but anyways, uh, here's the first one. Three themes we can pull out of Proverbs 9. The first one is that we feed on what appeals to our appetite. Uh, we feed on what appeals to our appetite. The second thing is God's grace reorients our appetite. And that re reorientation looks like correction. And then the third thing is that as our appetite for God's wisdom increases, contentment increases. 
So we're going to unpack those. Here's the first one again. The first thing is that we feed on what appeals to our appetite. Now we've got this poetic imagery of these two women, and it, this this image of two women culminates into two the tale of two meals, right? A meal of virtue, a meal of vice, meal of wisdom, meal of foolishness. And when you look at verses two through five, um, I want I want you to notice that wisdom's meal, it's it, wisdom is appealing to your soul with meat and wine and bread. And the, the meal of foolishness is bread and water. You look at those verses and you notice that. And it's an excellent image of this. Uh, there's a big difference between if you were to eat day after day after day, meat and wine versus bread and water, right? And those are the two meals that are being presented. And, uh, but in verse 17, with the way that foolishness presents it, the lady wisdom says, She's shouting from the rooftops, and foolish woman is shouting from the rooftops. They both shout the same thing. Come to my dinner invite. And one has substance, and one does not. And the way that, the way that foolishness depicts the bread and water is uh, in the emblematic poem. She says, hey, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret, you know, is, is uh, what does she say? How does she say it? It's, uh, it's uh, fantastic. You know, it's, it's excellent. It's, it's, uh, what does that mean? Stolen water is sweet. Water tastes like nothing. Ancient water tasted like warm nothing. And she's like, no, it's sweet. Uh, this is like a, a euphemism for illicit sex. And if you read back in verse uh, Proverbs chapter 5, you get that. You see that. This is like this, this appeal of, hey, it's more exciting if it's somehow forbidden. It's more exciting if it's somehow offside. This is the, this is the temptation. And so this imagery is reflecting, uh, or it's, it's provoking us to reflect on really what's attractive to our soul, RSVPing for God's wisdom or RSVPing uh, for the foolishness uh, that is outside of God's wisdom, that kind of is tantalizing to us. And so that's where this poem begins, is saying what's actually attractive to you. And so there's obviously practical applications in regards to sexual ethics, but this is actually pushing further than simply the sexual ethics. So in the, for, you read the scriptures and you find that God places sex in the covenant between a husband and his wife, that marriage covenant, because a marriage covenant is a lifelong commitment to lay your life down, to serve, to give, to die. That's the picture of marriage. And so God places that giving of the deepest, most intimate part of yourself, not just physically, but of course emotionally and spiritually, the whole of who you are sexually in the sexual act, giving that in the context of a commitment to lay your life down. And so he places it there. If you're a single person, then the scriptures reveal to you that you're not defined by your sexuality, that you are actually significantly more than your, your sexuality because Jesus, God personified, comes and he is a single man and he's fully human and he's fully satisfied and uh, he's, he doesn't engage sexually in order to be fulfilled human. And so when God comes in human form and lives a perfectly loving and fulfilled, purposeful life, you find that we're not defined by our sexuality. And today in our, our culture, the prevailing conversation, at least in, in our generation, is that you very much are defined by your sexuality. But consider for a moment how incredibly limiting that is if you're a single person, uh, if you're a person who's struggling with uh, 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 something uh, either mentally or physically where you're incapable of being fulfilled sexually. What does that mean for these people? Are they somehow not living, f f you know, uh, uh, lives, of, uh, lives of fulfillment? Is that possible? So 
the, the uh, Christian sexual ethics provoke us to think about things, and you can think about those things, which would be appropriate here, Proverbs 9. But it's actually going beyond just that sexual ethic, because all throughout the Old Testament, God uses sexual language to talk about the condition of the hearts of his people. So you'll keep reading in the Old Testament. It sounds a lot like God is saying, you're cheating on me. And he uses that language because he's saying you've, you've, you've at the depths of your soul gone and you've, you've moved somewhere else. So the purpose of that, this kind of sexual imagery um, is to make us think about faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Uh, because when you're faithful in a marriage or you're faithful to God, right, um, in terms of our love and our worship for him, Faithfulness describes a, a soul that's curved away from itself, right, to live for another. But unfaithfulness is, describes a soul that's curved in on itself and ends up preferring itself and using others because it's operating in a sort of an, not an others-centered love, not a God-directed love, but an inward-curved idolatrous love. And that leads to all manner of unfaithfulness. So the text is inviting us to consider these kinds of things. And the goal of the language overall is to get us to be reflective and repentant. So for you kids who have the sermon notes this morning, you'll notice they're kind of defined. What does it mean to be reflective and repentant? Right? You can look down and see what that, that means. It wants us to stop and think about how the decisions that we're making in our, our life day to day, they're, they're really fundamentally at the core. They're being formed by our trust in a God who will fill us. Or our decisions are being driven by our need to fill ourselves. So the first thing this text invites us to consider is that we are feeding on what appeals to our appetite. What we're hungry after and it's driving us around. Here's the second thing. Is that God's grace actually reorients our appetite. And that reorientation, it looks like correction. So there's a great portion in this text that looks like talking about correction. If you look at verse 3. Wisdom, she's crying in the highest places of the town. Lady Wisdom is crying out. This is, she's shouting from the rooftops. Come and receive from my wisdom. That, that's teaching us something about the nature of God. It's that he's not hidden himself. He's gone to cosmic lengths to reveal himself. Right? You can look out in nature at the cosmos, whether through the grandiose, through a telescope, or the, just the mind you know, boggling precision in our existence through a microscope. And either way, God has gone to great lengths to reveal himself. He's shouted his existence, he's shouted his love and grace from the rooftops. The cross is the most recognizable symbol on the planet. You can go anywhere and you can draw a cross in a country where you don't speak the language and they'll be like, I know exactly what you're talking about because God has not hidden himself. He's gone to great lengths to reveal himself so that in revealing himself, he can reorient our wayward appetites, draw us to him, and of course, enjoy him for all of eternity, ultimately. But this is what you find. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like here in Proverbs 9, wisdom is screaming it from the rooftops, you've got the apostles shouting the resurrection from the rooftops. You've got the Apostle Paul saying to, if you go back, if you study uh, Roman antiquity, you'll find he's having a conversation with Porcius uh, Festivus and King Agrippa, both Roman uh, rulers in the first century, right, in your history books. And Paul says to them, guys, this resurrection wasn't done in a corner. He's like, the whole world knows that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, right? In the second century, uh, you've got the Roman Emperor Celsus is trying to shut down this explosion of Christian worship in the Greco-Roman world, which, physically speaking, would make no sense, but, of course, it 
they, hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. It created a ruckus in the first century. Wisdom has always been shouting from the, from the housetops. I mean, I could take you through the whole Old Testament. God's been shouted from the housetops. In Genesis and creation. Yeah, in, Exodus, in, in Exodus, as he's, as he's uh, saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, he's systematically, the ten plagues, if you study Egyptian theology, you will find that the ten plagues are representative of ten different Egyptian gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So God systematically, he just takes a kill shot to ten of the gods. He's shouting from the rooftops, guess who the true God is? Turn. Always done this. Look at verse 6 of Proverbs 9. It says, it says, uh, leave your simple ways, right? Leave your simple ways and walk in my insight. You know, that's a big ask from us humans to leave our ways and walk in his insight because we are so committed to having things figure out. Um, in order to have God's w- wisdom and insight, we've got to have hearts that are postured to want to understand God and not stand over God. That, of course, requires the grace of God to move on our hearts and our, and our minds through the preaching of Christ so we can even do this. But wisdom says, leave your simple ways and walk on my insight. Now, I'm talking to the church, so I'm talking to people who our hearts and our minds and our eyes have been opened by the grace of God. And I'm talking to a group who has been scandalously saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's who I'm talking about. So we want to have hearts that want to understand and not stand over. This is these two terms that Martin Luther used during the the, uh, Reformation in the 1500s, magisterial versus ministerial use of reason. And Martin Luther accused the church and the Pope of of using a magisterial use of reason, standing over God's word instead of understanding it. Saying, this is wrong. You don't decide... You don't decide in your head what you need and and then contort the word to work out consistently with what you need. This was his big argument, using a magisterial use of reason. He says it's wrong. You've got to use a ministerial use. Now, uh, and that's that's why one of the big reasons why the Reformation happened, a lot of people said, well, it's too bad the church split. Why did the church split? Why couldn't you work it out? And in 1539, uh, Martin Luther wrote a, a treatise called Of Councils and Churches. And in it, he said, hey, if you can reform the church, good luck. You're a bigger man than I am. But the Pope has taken the keys of the kingdom and turned them into skeleton keys. And now he opens and closes whatever he wishes. Magisterial use of reason. You and I can do that when we stand over God's word. And we've got a preconceived idea of what we want or what we think or what the culture is saying to us. And say, well, we've got to contort the word to do this. Now, I've got kids in the service, so I'll explain magisterial, ministerial use of reason. Do you like this? Because I thought about it. I thought the kids are going to fall asleep when I'm talking about this. So I'm going to help you. I go to the store. I buy a Lego set, 5,000 pieces. It's incredible. It's, and it's to build a sailboat. But I don't want a sailboat. I want a castle. So I take those 5,000 pieces, and I just rearrange them. So that I have a castle. Now, if you've played with Lego, you know you can kind of make anything out of anything. But when they, but the designer who put the picture on the box said this is actually to build a sailboat. If you approach God's word with a magisterial use of reason, you just show up and you go, I want a castle. And you find a text that says actually God's prescription for you is not a castle. And you just apply fantastic theological gymnastics and you arrive at Presto, God's word confirming what you wanted before you went to it. 
right? And so Proverbs here is saying, you know, God is, does a reorientation of the appetite, but he does it through this thing called correction. And it's loving, of course, because he's a loving father, even though it's painful for us, but, or can be painful in our hearts and our minds as God's word challenges things that we think and, or, or want or believe. But he's a loving father. He's gracious and he's good. And so it's for our, it's for our, betterment, uh, our benefit. Now, when you read verses 7, it tells you what happens if you try and correct a scoffer. Right? A scoffer, for the kids that are in here, this is a real theological term. A scoffer is a person who goes, okay, write that down. I don't know how to spell that word, but if you can figure it out. Okay, that's a scoffer. You start explaining something to a scoffer and they're like, Pff. and so what the text says is, you try and bring correction into that per- person's life, but because they've got a magisterial way of relating to God's word or, or God's word or maybe life, it's like trying to rescue a drowning cat. And the text says you incur injury because they're not interested. And you and I, though we're children of grace and we love Jesus and we want to live to his glory, we're thankful for his forgiveness and we want to walk in his wisdom, all of us can see ourselves in this text. That we have moments in our life where we very much are like the scoffer and people come to our life to bring correction and we're just not interested. Or, or, or God's word can come and bring correction and we're just not interested. But God's grace is doing this to actually reorient our appetite. See, it's not a project in, in learning to just kind of relate to life in new ways. It's actually learning to love new things. And that's something that only the Spirit can do. And that's something that God is desiring to do uh, in all of us. So... When you get to verse 8, it tells you what happens when you try and offer wisdom to uh, a wise person, right? Well, they increase in learning. They, they, they increase in their understanding. It actually benefits them. Be, and, and this is because the wise person has that kind of ministerial way, way, use of, of reasons. Like, teach me, God. Speak to me, God. And you get that tone in David through the Psalms where he's like, Oh, God, speak to me and teach me and, and renew a right spirit in me. And this sort of language... Or you're not standing over, but standing under, or sorry, understanding. Um, in verse 12, it says, you know, if you scoff, you alone bear it. And what does that mean? Well, in an ultimate sense, the context here is God. Remember how this thing started. Wisdom has built your house, seven pillars, divine, fit for a king, fit for a priest. That should make us think of somebody. And so if, if this wisdom that's appealing to us, uh, we scoff at it, we scoff at God, we reject God, we reject uh, the resurrection. In an ultimate sense... There's an ultimate judgment. But in the here and now, and in particular uh, for us as a church, who we can, even though we've been saved in grace, can fall still into sinfulness. When we scoff at God, we, we bear the crushing burden that comes with being our own puny God. And that's because to scoff at God and to turn from God and to kind of live with indifference to God, because we are creatures, then something else has to, has to become our God. And we have to bear that. That's why it says, if you scoff, you alone will bear it. And so instead of making wise decisions from a soul that's at rest, you scoff at God, you're going to make foolish decisions driven by a soul that is at deep unrest, right? You can think of many applications of this, right? Think about, a soul at, think about your soul at rest in God and being a child of God. Your identity is something that you receive, right? Your sense of value as a person is something you receive because you're a child of this divine. So you're in a receiving mode. Your identity you receive. But if you scoff at God, something else has got to be your little God or you're your little God. 
And now your identity is not something you receive. You, it's something you've got to run off and achieve. You gotta, your value is not something that you sit in restfully. Your value is something you have to go on and you've got to, you've got to curate it. So you can think of many applications of that. But firstly, what we feed on, or sorry, we feed on what appeals to our appetite. Secondly, God's grace reorients our appetite. And that reorientation does look like correction from a loving father. And then thirdly, as our appetite for God's wisdom increases, our contentment increases. So this, this contentment is a, is a large theme that you can reflect on much more than I'm going to be able to do just this morning. But think about it. You got to eat. Everybody's got to eat. Two dinner invitations are coming your way. Which one do you RSVP to? And uh, we've got a, we've got a modern-day proverb, I think, about hunger, and it goes like this. Don't go to the grocery store while you're hungry, right? You've heard that? Have you ever gone grocery shopping while you're hungry? <laughs> and you're eating in the aisle while you're shopping? You're like, I'll just keep the wrapper and pay for this one. I, get. I mean, the things that we do when we're hungry. How many of you, were, when you were teenagers, you get home, I'm so hungry. You just start eating random things that require no preparation. You're just putting them together, eating them, eating them while you're making something to eat. The things that we do in our hunger. How many of you grown adults still do that? I mean, I do that on occasion. You, you'll, you, you lose track of time and you're working and working and then all of a sudden your body's like, hey! And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so hungry. So you go upstairs, you just start... There's a reason that proverb exists. The incredible, the, the, the bad decisions we make when our souls are hungry, there's no end to them. You've got these two dinner invitations, we're responding to one of them. Wisdom fills with meat and wine. Foolishness is the banquet of the dead. It's the bread and the water. And by God's grace, Jesus brings contentment to our soul. Again, you reflect on texts that say things like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It just speaks of radical contentment in the soul. And so if we, if we reject God's grace, or if like sheep we wander from the goodness of his grace, our souls will de descend into chronic discontentment. We will live in a state of constant kind of inner want. It'll drive us to all kinds of things. You've heard me quote Augustine from his confessions a hundred times, if you've been at Redeemer, where he says, Our souls are restless, O God, for they were created for you, and they will remain re restless until they find their rest in you. And God doesn't need us to be God. He's not needy. He doesn't need our worship. But we need him to be fully human. We need him to be fully ourselves. Right? And so the, the, the call to worship, wisdom calling us to the worship of God and to the rest of God, the contentment of God, it's not because God is a cosmic narcissist. Right? C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in his book, The Abolition of Man, he said, you know, you can't make God any less God by denying him worship than a crazy person can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the wall of their cell. So it's, it's not about God needing anything from us, but us truly at our, at our core needing him. And if at our core, our soul is in discontent, there's not enough booze, there's not enough career opportunities, there's not enough vacation destinations, there's not enough sex, there's not enough degrees or toys in your garage or trips to the mall. There is not enough to bring contentment. We are all worshipers. 
and something is on the throne. And whatever it is, it is determining the dinner RSVP. It is determining where we get the soul food. It is wisdom's feast or it is the fool's banquet of the dead. But when our heart is at rest in God's grace, we become increasingly wise in our relationships, in our vocation, in our pursuit of education, what we're going to do next, where we turn for recreation. Right? We become wise because none of those things are fundamentally the source of our contentment. We're actually approaching decision-making in all of those things from a place of inner contentment. Because we know that our life is safe in the hands of God. And so we're free to be wise and not foolish. As our appetite for God's wisdom increases, our contentment increases. Verse 5 says, Come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the ways of insight. Eating bread and drinking wine, that should remind us of something. I mean, this is the fellowship of the church centered around the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's table, this is wisdom's feast. This is Wisdom's Feast. This is the, the Feast of Insight, of, we, of remembering the perfectly loving, wise life of Christ, of remembering Jesus Christ, wisdom personified, of remembering the atoning, sin-absolving, death-erasing death of Christ. We celebrate here at the Lord's Table every week at Redeemer, and we celebrate that by grace and faith we're united to Christ. We marvel that we've been given the perfect, righteous record of Christ. And so now, as children of grace, what choice do we have but that to, from freedom, desire to live to the glory of grace, the desire to imitate and, and, to, and to sit under his wisdom and have our hearts and our minds reoriented by the wisdom of Christ. And so we, we, we rest in this church. We eat and we drink of, of wisdom's feast, the bread and the wine, remembering Jesus Christ, the power and wisdom who created all things. Jesus Christ, the exact image of the Father. Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of goodness and wisdom. Jesus Christ, the one who is sustaining everything and you by his powerful word. So turn to him, church. You and your children. Turn to him. And you will find contentment in your soul. You will find rest in your weariness. You will find wisdom for your life. Amen.